So it is the officially sort of, I guess, the holiday season-ish. Halloween's behind us. It's November. And so the next main major holiday is? I knew someone was going to say Christmas, and I thought it was going to be you. Yeah. Uh, Thanksgiving is the next major holiday. And I will say I love Thanksgiving because of the food. Right? Yeah, I'm thankful, blah, 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 whatever. It's food time. It's stuff my belly time. It's where the elastic waistband to lunch time. The one day a year I get to do that is Thanksgiving. So I love Thanksgiving. Uh, when, we th- you know, when we think of Thanksgiving, uh, we, we think of food. Maybe you think of football. Uh, maybe you think of family, for better or for worse. You know, I don't know how that goes at your home with your family, but it's part of it, part of the tradition. Uh, and then one thing that we think of traditionally, uh, historically, are pilgrims. The people, you know, with the funny hats. Who wears a belt buckle on their hat? The pilgrims did. Not sure why, but they did. Maybe they got the same hat when they were a kid and it expanded as they were an adult. Maybe. That's a pretty smart idea, actually. Good job, pilgrims. Good on you, pilgrims. Or maybe it's for Thanksgiving. You know, they ate Thanksgiving and even their head expanded because they ate so much and they needed to the belt loop one more out. I don't know. Anyway, this is going about as bad as my dream, so no. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm going to go to the back in just a second. No. But we think about pilgrims this time of year, and so the series that we're going to start over the next five weeks is simply called Pilgrim Songs. Now, we're not going to be singing songs of the Puritans from the 1600s, okay? That's not, I didn't like go back in the annals of time and find these ancient hymns. That's not what we're doing. Actually, what we're going to be doing is looking at a series of psalms from the Old Testament, which are between Psalms 120 and Psalm 134. Those 15 psalms are called the Songs of Ascent. And so what's significant about this group of psalms that we're going to pick five of the next few weeks and look at is that as ancient Israelites would go on pilgrimage from where they lived to Jerusalem three times a year, they would go there for holy days. They would go there for feasts and festivals, and they would sing these psalms on the way to these festivals these three times a year. So the first one that they would uh, go to in the spring is the Feast of Passover, one of the highest, holiest days on the Jewish calendar. It's significant because they remember when God freed them from Egyptian bondage. They'd been in bondage for 400 years, and so God appointed Moses to, to lead them out of bondage, but the Pharaoh would not let his people go, you know? And so God sent the 10 plagues to kind of harden his heart, and the last one was what's called the death of the firstborn. So it's basically the night before they're released, God has this thing going on. He says, hey, here's the deal. To really harden Pharaoh's heart, I'm going to release this death angel to go th- from home to home throughout the entire nation of Egypt. And, it, and he's going to slaughter the firstborn of every family, every household. But what he says is amazing. He says, I, I have a way out for you. If you take the, this lamb and slaughter it and then spread its blood on the doorposts of your home, the death angel will pass over your home and your firstborn will be spared. And so God did that. That's exactly what happened. So thousands of firstborn sons died on that night. But the ones who listened to God's command and they slaughtered the lamb and and by the blood of the lamb, do you see the symbolism here that God may have had in mind a long time ago? Because his son does the same thing. He is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. We're saved by the blood of the lamb. So God did this. The angel passed over. And so even to this day, the Jewish people will celebrate the feast of Passover every spring to commemorate God's saving them in that moment and their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. 
And then about 50 days later, the second major pilgrimage that these people would make to Jerusalem would be for the, the Feast of Pentecost, where they remember really two things. First, it's a Thanksgiving meal of God's blessing their grain harvest. And then secondly, it's become also an important point where they remember when God gave Moses the law. It's an important point in their history. They can point to that moment and say, really, it was at that moment we really became a people sort of for the first time. We have these common rules and laws that we go by that say this is who we are. And so they, they remember this during that second feast in the summer. And then in the early fall, actually this third one, it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was just celebrated a couple weeks ago in mid-October this year. It kind of rotates based on, a, on the Jewish calendar. So this year it was mid-October. So again, they'll go on a third pilgrimage in the fall to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And the tabernacle in the Old Testament was how they, where they worshipped God in the wilderness. So they had this huge, and we talked about it last week, when they built it, God appointed people to build the tabernacle and the things in it for worship. So they had this huge tent that they would put up to worship God as they were somewhere in the desert wandering and then when God said we're going to move on they would tear it all down and take it with them and then when he said we're going to stop here they'd put it back up so what they do at the feast of tabernacles is they remember God's faithfulness to them through their wandering through the wilderness for over 40 years that God took care of them uh, the people that entered the promised land he was faithful to them and provided for them they remember in the fall just like we do through thanksgiving God's goodness and faithfulness to us So at all three of these occasions, the pilgrims that would travel to Jerusalem for these feasts would sing these songs or these psalms on the way to Jerusalem, these songs of ascent. And so we're going to look through some of these the next few weeks and see the importance of them to us. And one thing that I find really interesting, I, I, I tend to overlook this quite often. I just see the Old Testament and then the New Testament, and they're just their own thing. Here's the cool thing. Jesus would have grown up making these same pilgrimages every year. So Jesus, as a boy, as a teenager, as a young adult, would travel with his family three times a year for these same feasts. And he would sing these same psalms. One thing that I find really fascinating that I overlook many times is Jesus sang the same psalms that we still have. Like, he, he knew them. He memorized them. He probably had a favorite. He probably had one. Yeah, Psalm 48 is my jam, y'all. Maybe Jesus had a favorite. You know, Psalm 100, woo, that's, that's killer. I love that one. I don't know. But Jesus would have sung these same songs that we're going to study today. And I think that, that to me is just is pretty cool. And the point of this series is that we are all pilgrims on our own journey. We're all traveling through life trying to figure stuff out. We all face issues and problems. We all have worries and cares. We have things of life that sort of get us all bogged down. So hopefully we can find the same hope through these psalms that the original audience would have felt. As they sense joy on their way towards something great, that we can sense that as well. Because we're pilgrims on a journey, but our journey this is not the final destination here and now. There is one yet to come. So we're traveling through this world as strangers and pilgrims in a foreign land. And we'll see that here in this psalm today very, very specifically. And so we're trying to sing these songs and these psalms and have this same attitude of worship on our journey toward our promised land as well. So today we're going to look at the very first one, Psalm 120. It's only six verses, so I'm going to read the whole thing, and we'll, we'll kind of look through it today and see the significance of this psalm for our lives. So here's the first pilgrim song, Psalm 120. We'll read it together today. The author says, I took my troubles to the Lord. I cried out to him, and he answered my prayer. Rescue me, O Lord, from liars and from all deceitful people. 
O deceptive tongue, what will God do to you? How will he increase your punishment? You will be pierced with sharp arrows and burned with glowing coals. That sounds nice, doesn't it? How I suffer in far-off Meshech. It pains me to live in distant Kedar. I'm tired of living among people who hate peace. I search for peace, but when I speak of peace, they want war. Now, this first one is sort of a bummer to start out with, okay? I don't know if you can tell, and we'll talk about why as we go along. This first one is, is what we call a song of lament, a song of sadness, a song of sorrow. The author of this psalm is clearly pouring their heart out to God. Which, let's stop there for just a second. Let me ask you what may seem like an obvious question, but maybe not to some of us. Did you know that you can do that with God? Did you know that you can pour your heart out to him? You don't have to keep it all bundled up. You don't have to keep it all inside. You can let it out. You can tell him how you feel. He's he's like, I'm surrounded by liars and haters. Okay? If Taylor Swift was around, she'd have told him what to do. Shake it off, right? But he didn't have, he didn't have the, you know, the prophetess of music, Taylor Swift, to let him know, here's what you do about that. Uh, so he had to go to God with that, okay? So he pours his heart out. You can do the same thing. You don't have to, uh, what if I get, what if God gets offended? He's not going to, you're praying to him. How's he going to get offended by that? He knows what you think anyway. How's he going to get offended if you just verbalize it? He knows what you think, how you feel, what you're, what's on your heart. Let it out. Let him know what's going on. There's something therapeutic, I think, even for ourselves about this practice of expressing our heart to God. Even at your lowest point, even when you're angry, even when you're frustrated, even when you feel whatever emotion it is, God can take it. He wants us to bring these things to him. This is what he wants from us. So we see this song of lament, this song of sorrow, bearing their heart out to God. There's a couple of things here. Uh, these, there's two part. We're going to talk geography for just a second, okay? Geography lesson, ancient geography for a second. So we've got these two places mentioned, uh, Meshech and Kedar. These are traditionally, they are places you can find them on ancient maps. And he mentions that they're far off and distant. So what this does quickly is tells us a little bit about when this psalm may have been written. So there are 15 of these. We know that one, or four of them are written by King David because it says in the inscription above. One of them was written by King Solomon. And 10, including this one, we don't know who the author is. Well, we know when King David and King Solomon lived, they were still in the United Kingdom early on in the kind of the golden days of Israel. But based on these two locations being mentioned, we can pretty safely assume this one's written much later. It's written after God has basically given off the nation of Israel into exile. Other powers have kind of dominated them and are overlording them. Because it mentions, I'm living in these distant parts. So I'm not living in Israel. I'm not living on the border. I'm living in distant Mekesh and distant Kedar. So what we can see is, we, it seems very clear here that we can assume this was written way later, either during or after the exile, which will be very important here in just a minute. And we see these elsewhere in the Old Testament. So the prophet Ezekiel mentions Meshech, and he says that those people are fearful. They strike fear and terror in the hearts of those around them. Not good dudes. And then the prophet Isaiah mentions Kedar. He says they have courageous archers that, again, sort of strike fear in the people around them. But in both of these, it's interesting because they're both known then in a negative way. They're both known for an antagonistic point of view toward God's people. They're not friendly neighbors. They're not, they're not buds. They are enemies with Israel. They are antagonistic, and they present an opposition to Israel's welfare. So in both, the, both these prophets, when they mention these places, talk about, hey, 
it's coming for you, buddy. Destruction's coming your way. You have archers. And then he, it's funny that in here, uh, the, the author mentions that they'll be pierced with sharp arrows. So he knows enough about the locations he's referencing to know they have archers. Well, God's going to pierce you with your own arrows. So, it, again, it's funny how the Holy Spirit works things out. Uh, things line up a certain way for a reason. So we have these places which show us that it's referring to um, a later place in time. Now, again, kind of a, a question is, are, do they really live there or not? We don't really know. It's possible that the author is using them to say, hey, I live really far out among a bunch of enemies here. I kinda, I'm kind of on my own on an island of belief here. Nobody around me is with me on this faith thing. I'm the only one that believes. And so we see this, that this is a later sort of written uh, that when Israel is scattered living among non-believers. What we do know for sure by reading this is that the author feels distant and alone. They feel like there's nobody around me that I can link arms with. I'm surrounded, he even says, I'm surrounded by liars, people who are, who are misrepresenting me, people who are trying to wear me down, they're trying to attack my character. And so it's like the people on pilgrimage are saying, hey, I need this break. Like I'm singing this first song because I'm ready to get out of here around God's people to a place where I can find encouragement and hope. Like I, I'm done living out here. I, I mean, I'm doing it, but it's not easy and it's difficult. And I'm, I'm suffering in a manner of speaking. And so I, I need this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship because they're surrounded by strife. And he says, I work for peace, I pray for peace, I live for peace, but I'm surrounded by war. So this idea of peace brings up a larger Old Testament theme, and it's a word that we've talked about before, but since it's here, we'll, we'll discuss it just for a second. And it's this idea of shalom. Now, typically, on kind of a surface level, now the word peace here is this word shalom. So we typically think, well, shalom means peace. That's the whole point. That's the meaning behind it. And that's true, but it's not just peace. It's not, shalom is just not the absence of war. There's more to the word than this on a very deep level to this culture to help us to understand how this person is really in the thick of it here. So on a deeper level, shalom also is referencing God's favor and blessing. So to live a life that is centered on shalom, that is seeking shalom, is I am living in such a way that I'm, I'm trying to live in God's favor and blessing. That everything that I do, I want his favor with that. Everything that I do, I want his blessing. I want to live in a way, and here's the other part with ancient Israel. They were very much of, of a collective mindset. In our current Western culture, we live in a very much individualistic mindset. I want to do what's best for me. And at the most, I want to do what's best for me and my immediate family. But the ancient Israel culture, the Middle Eastern culture, even much of it to this day, is not that way. It is a different mindset altogether. They are very much, I want to do what's best for everyone around me. I want to, I don't, so I don't just want God's favor for me and let everybody else just deal on their own. I don't just want God's blessing on my life and they can just burn. I don't care about them. The, the Israelite mindset here with shalom is I want to live in such a way that, that God's favor and blessing is on all of us. I want to promote that. I want to live that out. I want it to be shared. I want this blessing to be shared with as many people as possible. And then it even goes one step deeper than that. And it's this. So shalom does mean God's favor and blessing, but also on kind of the deepest level you can get to, it's also this idea of wholeness and flourishing. And again, we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating since we're on this idea of shalom. It's wholeness. Like life's not perfect, but 
with God, I, I'm whole. Like, I've still got issues and problems, and I'm a human being, and I still have worries and emotions, and I don't have it all figured out, but I have wholeness because I'm living in the shalom of God. I have his blessing and favor and wholeness in that. And also, flourishing is a huge part of this idea of shalom in this culture because, again, it's a collective idea. It's not just that I want to be whole. It's that I want wholeness for all of us collectively. It's not just that I want to flourish and I want to be so I can be greater and on this better degree than everybody else, like a couple steps above. No, I want everybody to come with me. I want everyone to flourish. I want everything to flourish. That's the deep-seated core idea belief behind this word shalom. It's more than just the absence of war. It's so much more than that. It's a state of being. It's a continual state of being and a collective state of being. I want this blessing and favor and wholeness and flourishing for all of us together. I want us to rise together. And so when you read what the author of Psalm 120 is saying in that context, it just adds to the problems that they're facing. Because what he's saying is the more that I strive for this shalom, this way of life, the people around me fight against me harder. And you would think, well, who would resist that? Who would resist wholeness in their life? Who would resist blessing and favor from God? Apparently, all of his neighborhood does, which is odd, but they do. And we'll see similarities in our own lives very shortly. He says, the more that I seek the favor and blessing of God, shalom, the more the people around me resist. They push back. They, they push it away. The more that I promote wholeness and flourishing through my life, through my actions, through my existence, the more the people around me fight. The more I want wholeness and flourishing, the more that they tear down and divide, destroy. That's a terrible place to be in. That's a rough spot that he finds himself in. So this This first one is important because it sets the tone. Hey, we're, we're coming out of this difficult situation, even if just for a little while, to get prepared to go back into it after this festival's over. Because this is not just going to automatically change magically all of a sudden while I'm in Jerusalem for a week, feasting and remembering God's goodness. It's going to be even worse when I get back, so i got to be prepared for this. So he's bearing his heart out to God, ready for this time of worship away, to then be ready for what's there when he comes back. Now, this type of situation may sound foreign to us, but when I read this, I see this in our culture around us today. This is where we live. Our culture is increasingly resistant to the things of God. Increasingly, on an exponential scale. Like, we're sliding down the hill as fast as possible away from God's goodness and his favor and his blessing and wholeness. Like, our culture doesn't care about anybody but numero uno. Typically, that's what separates Christians from non-Christians is we do to some degree still, even in a Western mindset, still have that collective idea to some degree, more so than others that are not of the faith. They're in it for them and them alone. I don't care about whatever anybody else has going on or what they need or what their issues are. I got to take care of me and me only and me first and that's it. We're increasingly becoming distant from God in our culture. We're increasingly resistant to truth. Well, I can't say a firm statement on anything moral because, oh, it's going to offend everyone. Or I can't make this stance because, whoa, what if they get hurt? What if their feelings get hurt by that? Or what if they're dealing? It's like we're increasingly averse to truth in our culture. And so if we are followers of Jesus who believe in him as the way, the truth, and the life, it has been and will become increasingly difficult to make it in this culture. It just will. 
So we are much like the author of Psalm 120. Our culture has become increasingly not only immoral, but amoral. So not just against morality, which is immoral, but amoral, removed from morality completely. So basically our culture is trying to convince us that there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute morality. There's, everything is gray area all the time. And I'll be honest, there are a lot of things that there is there, I mean, it, what gray blends and the black and white blends. And I, I don't know what to make of this. And I don't know the right decision to make. There is a lot of that in day-to-day stuff. But I do believe in absolute truth. I do believe that that has not changed. Culture changes and things change and even methods change, even in church and faith. But absolute truth is still there, even though our culture is moving as far away from that as they can. We are increasingly in that kind of climate. Uh, And then the the funny thing, though, is that our culture is increasingly lost and confused in all of this. How did we get here? How are we so low? Well, because you've walked away from absolutes like you've you've willingly snubbed your nose at the answers that you're seeking while wondering why you're lost it's like having the road map and then burning it and then wondering why you can't find your way that's what our cult that's where we find ourselves in our culture the the outside christian non-christian culture is increasingly removed themselves from the answer that they are seeking it seems crazy but again it goes back to psalm 120 who would resist wholeness and flourishing Our culture does, apart from Christ. Who would resist, you know, living the best sort of life, the grounded life, you know, a life of peace, a life of joy? Who would resist that? Our culture, apart from Christ, resists it every day, all the time, increasingly so. We are much like this author of Psalm 120. And again, for a committed disciple of Jesus, it is increasingly difficult to live in this culture. We feel like the author of this psalm, distant, alone, Hopeless. There's even this term that's been popular the last several years, culture wars. It's really not a war against against different cultures. It's it's more of a the the modern culture's war against what has been, what we've already talked about, what has been established as this is the best way. No, there's there's not just one way. Well, this is this is the best way. Oh no, there can't. That's where we find ourselves. We feel out of place at times as believers in Jesus. We can feel hopeless at times. We can feel like there's nothing that we can do. So what do we do? I think what we see here in this psalm, especially the first couple of verses, we're going to come back to several times here for the next few minutes and see here, here's the answer. And let me, I want to give really three specific ways. So the main answer is mainly through prayer for a believer in Jesus. There are specific ways that we can pray for our culture and about our culture and within our culture to find hope in times that seem hopeless, to try to find answers for those that are seeking them. There are different things that we can do. And let me just reference a couple of scriptures to point out these three different ways that we can pray uh, about our culture. That is increasingly like the one we're reading here. How can we survive in our culture? How can we thrive? How can we change in this increasingly secular culture? Jeremiah 29, verse 7, the prophet Jeremiah says this, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. So Jeremiah says, what's the answer when you feel alone in your godless culture? Work to make it better. That seems counterintuitive. Why would I want to make this godless culture any better? Because typically what we want to do in our own heart is pray judgment on our culture. 
God, rain down your fire of judgment on them. We may not pray it like that, but sometimes we think, I wish God would just give them what's coming to them. Here's the problem that Jeremiah points out. The problem is you're caught in the middle of that culture. So if you pray for its destruction, you're going down with it. If we prayed for God's judgment to come, let's say on our own nation that has increasingly removed itself from God, if we pray for judgment, we might want to be careful what we pray about because we're in the culture. We're, we're in the middle of it. So if we pray, I pray for like financial ruin for America, guess what? You're going broke too because you live in America. So when the price of gas skyrockets, God judged it. He answered your prayer, but now you're paying $10 a gallon for gas, really? That's not what, I didn't want that. You prayed for God's judgment, and it came, and you're in the culture. Now, you're not a part of the bad part of culture, but you're stuck in it. Because what Jeremiah is doing here is he's prophesying about this exile. So Babylon's going to come in and wipe out uh, Israel, take them over, control them. They're basically slaves all over again. He says, pray for their welfare, because they're... It's tied with your own. Their welfare is tied with yours. So don't pray for judgment. Don't pray for fire and brimstone. Pray for God's blessing. And it seems weird, but it, that, that's why it makes sense. He says, work to make it better. Work for peace. That, pe that word shalom there again. And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, you know, in my efforts, and so Paul ministered to like the dark places people that didn't, had never heard about Jesus, people who are far from God, like the worst of the worst. He said, I became like them to reach them. So there are times where we have to do some things we never really thought, methods that we never thought we would employ to try to make that difference. Praying for the welfare of the nation that we feel like, I wish God would judge them. No, 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 do the opposite of whatever you feel like you need to do. Do the opposite of that. So sometimes God will stretch us to reach people far from him. Sometimes God will give us methods or means, and you're like, ah, I'm not sure about that. If it's God giving you the green light here, you got to go with it because he knows what he's doing. He's done it before. Paul says, I became all things to all men that by all means I might save some of them. So that's our mission as Christ followers. We're kind of undercover in some ways. We're, we're an operative. We're on a mission here to kind of subversively change the culture from the inside out as much as we can. So we want to pray and work for the peace and well-being of our culture. That's the first thing we can do to not only survive but thrive in our current culture. The second thing is to pray for the powerful and the decision makers. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people, ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. There's that word peace again. There's no, there's no accident here. God knows what he's doing. We can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. So Paul says, hey, pray for your leaders, even and especially the ones that you don't like, because they're still in power. I don't care if you agree with them or not. Pray for them. Again, not for their judgment, because that's not going to be helpful if we have chaos in our political system more than we already do, okay? We're not praying for, like, heart attacks for this person in this district. We're not praying for an accident, whoops, for this person in that area, in that state, so they, they can turn it to a different color. That's not what we're doing. We're praying for their well-being. We're praying for godly wisdom to be imparted to them even and especially when we disagree with them. He, because the king he's talking about here is like killing Christians. So the, specifically, 1 Timothy, we're talking about Nero in six, the 60s AD, the king who rounds up and kills Christians because he likes to, because it's fun for him, because he's literally going insane, and that's what, you know, he likes to do. That's, he says, pray for them. 
Well, I don't agree with them politically. Pray for them. I don't agree with their morality. Pray for them. Maybe God would save them. Which brings up an interesting point, and I wasn't planning on this, but it just fits. I don't know if you've heard about what's going on with Kanye West lately. Okay, so he's this, you know, huge mogul rap superstar who's recently come to faith in Christ. He's publicly professing hardcore faith in Christ. So here's the reaction that I'm seeing a lot from Christians all over the place. Well, we'll just wait and see. Oh, we'll just see about that, Mr. Kanye. You've lived your whole life apart from God, and you've been doing this, all these naughty things. I don't buy it. I'm like, it just makes me so sad when so many Christians have that attitude. I'm like, what? This guy's a huge influencer who's claiming faith. Can you imagine the impact he can have on even his other, you know, former associates? And when they see that this is when they see this is real, they're like, man, you're living, you got peace? Like your music is still good, even though it's about Jesus now? This is great. You mean this, you can open we can open up this industry in this whole new way? Like, I'm in on that. Think of the impact, the influence he can now. He's not a politician, even though he plays one on TV sometimes, okay? Uh, but he is an influencer, and he has a lot of amazing ability to impact people. So here's the deal. Pray for him. Don't wait for him to slip and fall. Like, don't wait for, oh, I knew it. I called it. I, I knew it. You know, like when six months he says something stupid or does something bad. I, I knew it. wasn't real. wasn't, you know. It's like, because he has cameras in his face. If we followed you around with a camera, we would see you slip and fall too, right? And I'm, with, I'm talking about to me, all right? If he followed me around with a camera, you would think, oh, that's my pastor that, that said that, that did that. Yeah, it is. But guess what? Lucky me, I don't have that camera, right? So you can't see that. But Kanye doesn't have that luxury. He is out there. And so let's pray for him. You know, if it's not genuine right now, for, for real, let's pray that it would be. Let's pray that his faith grows and he, and he flourishes and finds wholeness and that God blesses what he does. So we want to have this, this positivity in our prayer for those that are powerful, that are movers and shakers and decision makers in our culture. That's a great way to influence our culture. The third thing that we can do is to pray for God's intervention in our culture. Job 12, 23, Job says this, He, that's God, builds up nations and he destroys them. He expands nations and he abandons them. So ultimately, we see how terrible our culture has become. Can I give you good news? God's still in control. Like it seems like maybe he's not, and it feels like he's on vacation. Maybe he's given up on the Western culture. They're just so far from him. He's like, you just do your own thing there. You know, God's still in control. He is still over and above everything and everyone. So one thing we should pray for is for God to do what seems like cannot be done. And we see that in the Old Testament, too, in 2 Chronicles 7.14. It's a very famous prayer. He says, if my people, this is God speaking, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. We need to pray for God to intervene in our culture. We need to pray for God to use us to be part of that intervention, again, subversively doing what we can to shake things up. That's what Jesus did. That's why he was crucified. He tried to shake things up a little too much for the uptight religious folk. And they didn't like his message. They didn't like his methods. And they said, nope, God would never do it that way. Shing! We want to be like Jesus. Shake things up a little bit. Help people to find the truth in Christ. That's how we can make a difference in our culture. Pray for God to do what cannot be done. God, I can't change their mind, but you can change their heart. I can't change their viewpoint, but you can do something deep down on a soul level with them. God, would you do that? 
Would you save my neighbors? Would you save my coworkers? Would you do what I don't think can happen? But I know you can do it. That's how we can make a difference in our cultures for God's intervention. Let's get down to a personal level just for a second, too, about this psalm. Maybe it's not just the culture at large where you find the similarities in this psalm. Maybe you look at this psalm and you're like, this is my life. You look at your family and there's not a lot of other strong Christians there. And so at this time of year when you're around family, like you kind of feel on an island here. Maybe they even, you know, poke fun at certain things because they know it's going to get under your skin. Maybe they make certain statements because they know it's going to bug you. Maybe they just don't get it and you feel like, oh, I'm, I, I, I can understand. I can sympathize. I can empathize with the author of Psalm 120. I feel alone. I don't have a lot in my inner circle that are close, passionate disciples of Jesus. Maybe when you go to your job this week, you're going to find yourself in the minority religiously. You're going to feel like, you know, they're, they're always discussing these things, and I just don't feel comfortable, and they always, you know, do these things, and I just don't feel comfortable, and they, they don't do anything to help me feel comfortable, and I just, I just feel out of place like the author of Psalm 120. And maybe you even have, you know, you're surrounded by drama in your life all the time. He says, I'm surrounded by war all the time. People that lie about me, people that talk about me, people that try to ruin my character. Maybe you find yourself in that situation. Maybe people in your own family, believe it or not, would, would fill your life with that sort of pain. It's a hard thing to consider, but it happens all the time. So maybe you can really empathize with the author here and feel hopeless and alone, and like, God, where are you? What, I'm pouring my heart out here. I feel so desperate, and I feel so abandoned here. What, what hope do I have? Let's return to the first two verses of Psalm 120, verses 1 and 2. Here, it's the same thing we can do. I took my troubles to the Lord. I cried out to him. And what? He answered my prayer. And then he says, rescue me, O Lord, from liars and from all deceitful people. You can do the same thing in your life, in your situation. You feel alone. You feel abused. You feel abandoned. You feel gossiped about all the time. You feel belittled by others around you that don't share your faith values. You can look to the Lord. You can cry out to him. He will answer. You can cry for deliverance. Rescue me. He will rescue you. He has your back. He knows your heart. Because sometimes that's the thing we're concerned about is like, well, what if they say this and people believe it? God knows your heart. He's your defender. He's your rescuer. He, he's got you. So you can rest in that. Now, at times it may not feel like enough, but it's something. I mean, at times it may feel like I still am not sure. Just, again, pray harder for God to reveal himself more intimately to you. Help him to give you strength and power and encouragement and courage in these situations that you face. God will answer your prayer and he will rescue you. And as we kind of wind it up today, maybe on an even more personal level, maybe you feel like this psalm represents your spiritual life. Maybe you feel distant from God. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe for some reason, some sort of outside event, you feel abandoned by him. Maybe you feel like life's given you a raw deal and God's not been very fair to you. And I try to live in this shalom and I try to live for wholeness and peace, but I'm not sensing that. And I look at my life and I'm like, God, what am I doing wrong here? Where have I made a wrong turn and what, where are you in all of this? Looking at verse number one, let's read it again. I took my troubles to the Lord. Again, you can tell him how you feel. You can pour your heart out to him. He will not turn you away. Instead, what will he do? He will answer your prayer. Don't be afraid to go to him with questions. 
Don't be afraid to go to him with, well, God, I thought this. Well, God, you said that. Well, God, this was going great, and then all of a sudden it's not. What's the deal? What's the problem? What's, where's the disconnect? You don't have to be ashamed of those questions. You don't have to be afraid to express your emotions to him. You can go to him. He will answer your prayer. God loves you. He longs for that kind of relationship with you where you can tell him anything. you have anybody like that in your life? You can tell them anything. They won't judge you. They won't think ill of you. And here's the thing. Even if you don't, you can have someone like that in your life, and his name is God. He's in this psalm right here. He will answer. He's not going to say, oh, nope, you can't talk like that to me. I'm God. Squash. You know, you're not a bug. He's trying to squash. You're a child he wants to love. You're a child he wants to listen to. You're a child he loves and cares about and would do anything and has done anything for, including having his own begotten son slaughtered for you in your place for your sin. God loves you that much. So surely he'll, he'll hear you gripe a little bit, right? Surely he's okay with your complaints every now and then. He can handle it, and he will answer your prayer. Don't doubt him on that. Don't say, well, he'll listen to them, but not to me. Why? Because they're so much better than you? No. He will answer your prayer. He wants to be near you. He wants to show this shalom to you. He wants to extend wholeness, flourishing, peace in your life. He wants you to experience that and can only be done through him. Again, our culture is not, you're not going to find it there. In yourself, you're not going to find it there. You can't find answers in yourself because you're asking the questions. That doesn't make any sense. The only source for this kind of shalom, the only source for this kind of peace, this kind of security, this kind of hope, and this kind of joy that this psalm is pointing toward can only be found in the God who formed you, the God who made you, the God who cares about you, the God that listens to you, the God that wants that relationship with you. If you feel distant and you feel alone, you feel abandoned, you don't have to. You can turn to him and he will he will answer as we call on him. He will be your shalom in whatever you're facing to give you wholeness and flourishing in your life.